Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. More revelations about RTE, including a €450,000 golden handshake that was not approved by the board as senior executives faced a grilling in front of the Oireachtas Media Committee. Also on the programme, the Minister for Integration, Roger Gorman, tells us he's confident of a decent turnout at the upcoming referendums, but says the government is not going to be complacent about the outcome. Well, government certainly never takes any referendum uh, for granted. There's no complacency. Uh, as you've seen, all three of the government parties have launched campaigns, have directors of elections in place, are undertaking canvassing, uh, as, of course, are a significant number of civil society groups. And the Taoiseach and his Spanish counterpart call on the EU to take urgent action over Israel as the situation worsens in southern Gaza. RTE boss Kevin Backhurst has revealed more details about exit packages for departing executives, including €450,000 paid to former Chief Financial Officer Brita O'Keefe. The revelation came during a highly charged hearing of the Oireachtas Media Committee, which was notable more for the absence of key witnesses. Here's the moment that Mr Backhurst revealed the amount given to the former CFO when she left the broadcaster. What was the cost to RTE? Of which voluntary exit package? For Breed or Keefe. Um, I can't say that. That's, that's uh, confidential and I can't say... I think it's really important, Mr Backhorst, you put that into the public. I agree with you. Transparency is important. I agree with you. It's important in this case. Breed or Keefe was paid €450,000 to leave. Can you repeat that? €450,000. Joining me to discuss today's hearing are Fianna Fáil TD and Chair of the Joint Oireachtas Media Committee, Neve Smith, Labour Party TD, Aon O'Reardon, political correspondent with the Irish Mirror, Louise Byrne, and by Fiona Sheehan, Ireland editor with the Irish Independent. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Uh, Louise, we were wondering, would we hear anything new today, given the absence, as we say, of key names at this Dáil Committee? But there were revelations, as we saw there. Take us through the key lines that emerged yeah, I think, to be honest, one of the most surprising things is that the amount of new information that we did get, because I think we were going into this and there were a lot of people, like you say, absent. I think the big person that everyone wants to hear from is the former Director General Dee Forbes. They also wanted the former CFO, Rita O'Keefe, in, the former chair of the RTE board, uh, Moya Zaharty, as well as Rory Coveney, the former Director of Strategy. And those really big names were missing. So I think there was a working assumption that there was going to be no new information. And I think it started off slow. It did start off slow. We were kind of going over those reports and then I think we had that bombshell moment from Fine Gael's Alan Dillon who pursued a very good line of questioning 
in fairness to him, credit where credit is due, and he asked Kevin Backhurst, he was the first person to ask Kevin Backhurst, well, what was Breda O'Keefe's exit package? Like you heard there, Kevin Backhurst initially really reluctant to actually give that information away, saying there was a legal threat from ha or hanging over RTE. He also actually mentioned earlier in the committee that he just received last night a solicitor's letter from Breda O'Keefe, and she had asked him to bring up several things during the committee, to which he responded, well, you're invited, come in and do it yourself. So eventually, after probing from Alan Dillon, he did reveal that €450,000 figure. Now, we did kind of have an idea that it was in the region of that figure, mm -hmm. but I guess it was the first kind of concrete level of information. And I think this evening, a lot of people, and I would imagine a lot of staff in RTE, former staff, anchor and staff, really, really annoyed about that figure because we do know when that redundancy package was given, it was meant to be a cost-saving measure. We know that Breed O'Keefe, a new CFO, was brought in to replace her. And that salary didn't seem to decrease. We heard Richard Collins in one of Neve's committees saying that he was still earning something like 225,000 euros. So I think there's going to be a lot of questions about that exit package mm. and a lot of people really angry tonight about that. Yeah, and Neve, you were missing main players and I think you made it, you, you, you urged for people, you know, to come on and to speak to you. Many haven't to date. Um, one of them today when it came to our exit package was, of course, uh, Breed O'Keefe. You wanted her to, to, to join the committee today. Did you get the information you wanted, though, despite her not being there, given that figure of €450,000, which Kevin Backhurst uh, originally held back on revealing, mm -hmm. but then you know, promptly gave to the committee upon questioning? Well, Breed, as we know, isn't the only person who's received an exit package. We know that Mr Coveney, we learned that today too, that he's received an exit package as well. We didn't get the figure revealed on that. I did make the call to Dee Forbes and Maya Doherty and Rory Coveney and um, others to make themselves available because they are key actors, mm -hmm. if you like, in, in all of this. And it's very difficult for the committee to conclude, to come up with real, <clears throat> a real conclusion and report that, you know, is airtight without those people well, being in the conversation. What did you take from uh, the figure revealed, the €450,000, and indeed... The, the confirmation that there was another uh, exit deal uh, given to the it former director of strategy, Rory Coveney. It is breathtaking because it is against a backdrop where I've met with staff, and I'm sure I'm not the only ones in my committee meeting, uh, who have met with staff individually who are nothing close to that in terms of what their earnings are and the insecurity they've had in the job mm. for years on end and this real parallel universe that the staff, some of the staff were living in with an RT. So there was the executive, and if we call it the executive bu bubble, who are on very high salaries. And I made the point to Shuni Ratti to say, I think it's deeply unfair to presenters uh, who have their salaries broadcast every year, every two years or whatever it is. And there are people within the executive okay. earning more than the broadcasters mm -hmm. themselves. I was trying to make the point that we need fairness now with an RT. And along with that openness and tra transparency, we treat presenters the same as we treat right. people in the behind the scenes as well as the executive. OK, Aon, on this, and we heard um, tonight from um, Sinn Féin's Brian Stanley saying that Breed O'Keefe had a moral obligation to pay back that €450,000. Do you believe she has? Well, I, I, I think everything has to be considered at this point. I mean, just, just for context, um, there was an agreement from 2017, 2018 that there would be no voluntary, there would be voluntary, voluntary redundancies only on the basis of posts being suppressed. So quite clear, these posts were not ones that were being suppressed. These were important roles mm -hmm. within, within RTE, but the board didn't know about it and then it was signed off on. Uh, without board knowledge. Now, maybe the board should have asked more questions. But it's the oversight of this, which is the bigger Essentially, that person. it was a, a chief financial officer's yeah. job and that that post was replaced. That, and there that, was a new chief exactly. financial officer in so, place and she so, got an exit So the deal. criteria that was an understanding of 
if you like, the um, ordinary staff members of RTE wasn't uh, the same criteria for more highly paid people in RTE. And this is an organisation, by the way, that's going to lose 20% of its staff over the next four, four years. Mm -hmm. It has 10 million uh, cut in its budget for this year in, in programming costs. So it really does feel, as Marie Sherlock, my, my colleague, uh, has said, a, a very much an upstairs, downstairs mm -hmm. type of, of attitude within Orgy. And it's, it's tragic because many of us really believe in the importance of Orgy, what it provides as a public service broadcaster, uh, and the Orgy that we, that we used to trust and believe in. And so it's really at a very dangerous crossroads. Okay, uh, Fiona, on this, I mean, where, where is the pressure now at? Is it on Breed O'Keefe? Um, to hand back some or all of that €450,000 exit deal? What about that. Rory Coveney I mean, the, and the exit <clears throat> payment that he received, details of which we were not furnished with today? Yeah, we, we were aware that, that Rory Coveney had received some sort of package uh, last summer at, at the time of, of his departure. Again, the, the details were, were not disclosed. I mean, with, with, in Breed O'Keefe's situation, it, it's crystal clear. She applied via the Director-General uh, for this package back in September of 2017. She was given a letter, which was a legally binding contract by RTE, by the Director of Human Resources, who was still there, uh, in the summer of 2019. And she left in April of, of 2020. So the contract was in place and she was paid uh, the money. So whatever about legal, uh, moral obligations here, the letter of the law is... She, was, she applied for redundancy and she got it. Now, you can question, uh, was this uh, the legitimacy of it, given that it wasn't signed off on by the executive? But she can say, well, actually, the letter that she received from the Director of Human Resources said it was signed off on by, by the executive. The same Director of Human Resources was also involved in commissioning the payment to be, to be made for her. The same Director of Human Resources was aware of this issue from October of 2017 to July of 2023 without telling anybody else and on she, the management And team. she did face a, gr a grilling today, it has to be said, in, in front of um, um, in front of this uh, Iraq, this briefing. But Kevin Backhurst was quick to defend uh, Emer Cusack in her role and in her actions. Well, he was, but, I mean, that, that didn't stop um, members of, of the committee from basically pointing out Mel Munster started by, by saying, this is the problem. People see these things going on and nobody been held to account. Uh, Brendan Griffin questioned the credibility of her, of her, of her position. Uh, Michal Carrigy saying it, it wasn't tenable. And Marie Sherlock actually going at it quite subtly and just saying, at each step, you had an opportunity here to tell other people, why didn't you? Why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you tell somebody else? Why didn't you report to the executive? Why didn't you report it to the board? And teasing it out with her and establishing, well, you weren't afraid of D Forbes. You weren't afraid of raising it. You just decided not to. Yeah. Uh, Neve, on that, um, another, you know, uh, from the opposition tonight, Emer Cusack should consider her position, Brian Stanley says. What do you say to that? Would you agree with him? Um, I, I mean, the whole thing has been such a mess and there are, you know, there are, I suppose, there's a viewpoint there that Mr Backhurst has you know, put, exited some of the members of the executive and with the, and hasn't done that to others. Now, he said quite categorically today it would have been reckless of him to do that, to not keep certain people in place to have some kind of continuity within the organisation. I do think Ms Cusack um, had questions to answer. I think she answered them probably to the best of her ability in the situation that she's in. 
The report itself said there were quite a number of these exit contracts mm. all looked at. There was one, I believe, that, and that was the Breed O'Keefe one that was a problem and that was, you know, not adhered to the, and had, had the approval of the board the yeah. same as the others. Do you believe her position is tenable? I think it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. Okay, you're not giving me an answer. You're not sure. Where is the difficulty for you? Well, the difficulty is there was a, a, a very robust um, Grant Thornton report done mm. on the whole thing and quite a number of um, um, contracts were interrogated. There was one there was an issue with. So I'm not saying that that causes some, somebody's resignation. I actually think there were far bigger problems within the organisation and much more culpability across the board than that one individual. Oh, right. Okay, uh, I want to ask... Just one add-on. It's going to get worse because there's a tax bill that's going to come from Breda O'Keefe's uh, exit package now. So we know it was 450 grand in total. We don't know how much of that is should mm -hmm. be subject to taxation. We know that, that that has now been referred to the Revenue Commissioners. And the answer today from RTE was crystal clear. When a tax liability comes back on that package after paying... Breedo Key 450 grand, RT are now going to be paying a tax bill on it as well. And potentially other packages as well other, that we don't have. The other have, 10 we, we, deals, we, we know about. Have yeah. details on. That was the first time they said today they will be paying Breedo Key's tax bill as well as the original payment. So ultimately, the taxpayer um, on, on the hook for any uh, potential uh, tax bill there. Louise, uh, to turn to Toy Show the Musical, and members of the board clearly were shifting the blame um, to two non participants. Um, Rory Coveney and Dee Forbes. Anne O'Leary, um, who's, who's on Ortiz Audit and Risk Committee, being most revealing here. Yeah, Anne O'Leary really came in with all guns blazing today. And I suppose the real question is, how did Toy Show the Musical get signed off in the first place? And what Anne O'Leary was saying is, as head of the Audit and Risk Committee, that project should have come to her. She was quite staunch in her defence of herself, as you would expect in that committee. Rory Coveney, D Forbes, not there to defend themselves. So, of course, Anne O'Leary was going to defend herself in the best way that she could. And she was quite strong in her language. She said that there was a procedure in place for getting sign-off for projects. She said there's been 30-odd projects have come to her mm. since she's been in that position, and this one didn't. And what she said, its procedure is there, and that D Forbes and Rory Coveney deliberately circumvented that procedure. So really, really strong words mm -hmm. from her. And I suppose this kind of harks back to what we did here in that Grant Thornton report of when this was ultimately presented to meetings, be it in March, April or May of 2022, it was presented as a fait accompli, is the word that is used all the time. And it was presented, the tickets were on sale, the venue was booked, people already knew about this, it was too late to pull out. And what Anne O'Leary was saying is that any time that she had sought information on this, she asked Dee Forbes, she asked Rory Coveney, she said she wasn't alone in that, no information was forthcoming. And someone asked her at one point, do you think that information was withheld or do you think, you know, that your request was ignored? And she seemed to indicate that she thought the request was ignored. But again, Dee Forbes and Rory Coveney not there to yeah. defend themselves. So we don't know their part of the story either, which I think a lot of people do want to hear tonight. And Aon, we, we heard um, from Kevin Backhurst there that things were run in an unprofessional ad hoc way. That's what he said in front of the committee today. What further questions would you have asked Rory Coveney, Moya Doherty and... Well, uh, D Forbes in relation to this? Well, see, there were problems early on. I mean, a very good friend of mine, Lisa Tierney Coe, was one of the very early writers uh, of, of Toy Show, the musical, who was then replaced in August, and she's written a piece in the Irish Independent today about her experiences. So quite a number of people's reputations were thrown under the bus by this whole uh, project. And from very early on, I remember talking to Lisa Bell, who said there are absolutely going to be Oireachtas hearings over this entire debacle. They took something which is very special 
in, in Irish Live, the toy show, and tried to make a quick book on it. There was no, again, no oversight on it and was presented to the board as a fair company. So, I mean, what we all want, I suppose, after all this is finished, is that we have some future for RTE and that none of these mistakes are ever made again and there's robust oversight. But we would have felt that we had that already. So if this can happen, and if the Ryan Tuberty thing can happen, and if the redundancy packages thing can happen, what else is there? Yeah. And I, you know, it's very, going to be very difficult for us to, to charter a course for RTE into the future uh, unless you know, everything is out, out and open. I'll say uh, two more things. The non-appearance of those who need to be there is a real problem. Also, the, the, uh, the reluctance to answer a question, which was then answered almost immediately, is also an issue because people now feel as if, you know, what else is being, is being uh, held back from the public? Yeah, uh, on, like, the issue of compelling witnesses to appear before um, the Oireachtas Committee, what are you going to do about that? Because at this point, these briefings, these hearings started in June of last year. We're eight months in and we are still waiting to hear from... D Forbes, from Jim Jennings, from other people, and we had absences today, key absences. People you wanted to get answers from, and you couldn't get those answers because they weren't present. So what are you going to do about that? So I've already asked the clerk of the committee to a scoping exercise to see what powers we have, because we have the other added layer of difficulty that there are six certs being provided to the committee and that it's not just, that for not all of them, it's not a case of not just turning up. We're told that they're unwell and not able to turn up. So that is why I again asked those who have not been at the committee hearing so far that they wouldn't put the committee into a position that we would have to compel because that is an onerous, so long task. that process? And the, the clerk, as I said, have asked her to go and do a scoping exercise and we're going to take legal advice on a committee as to what we can do for those who are providing six certs because at the moment we have a six cert from D Forbes who is key to all of this. Um, Roy Covey just wasn't available today. Jim Jennings, I believe, is unwell at the moment too. So there is a piece of work to do there. I think the last time people were compelled before an Oireachtas committee might have been the banking inquiry. I'm not mm. sure it's been ever done since that. And I think time might be against us on this. Are you willing to do it? Absolutely. If it's possible for us to do it, I've said we will do it. OK, Fiona, you yeah, um, can't blame these can, people as can well. Can we get though. closure without the key players? Yeah, but you can't blame these people for not, not showing up, given the manner in which the House of the Oireachtas have behaved in the past. A decade ago, Angela Kearns, a chief executive of an organisation, appeared before it. Her constitutional rights were breached by an all-star, all-package, all-punching, dull public accounts committee. And ten years later, she's still down the Supreme Court looking for recompense and justice for the manner in which he was treated. So what do you so do? I don't blame these people for turning around to the house of your and going, I'm not turning up to be treated like that. Yeah, well, but is that, think... is that showing disregard in an effort to get answers on behalf of the public well, no, about think, what's no, happened I, in North the, the point is, the Oireachtas is suffering from the sins of the past, where in the past, TDs who, did, who had big names and went on to great political careers subsequently, basically abused uh, individuals who appeared before... Uh, committees, and now I think the Oireachtas is suffering because mm. this has had, has had knock-on legal and moral consequences. That may be the comment, case, yeah. but can I just make the point, I think we have really made a concerted effort to be fair and respectful and give people the opportunity, and that's why I again would appeal to those executive mm. members who have not been made themselves available, to make themselves available, and I think they can have confidence seeing how our committee has operated up to this point, that they will get a fair hearing, that they won't be right. abused or treated with disrespect. Alright, okay, well there we'll have to leave that for now. Uh, my thanks to Neve Smith, Louise Byrne and Fiona Sheehan. Aon is staying on because after the break, Minister for Integration Roger O'Gorman talks about Gaza, refugees and referendums. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Tisha Gleev Radker and the Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez have written to the European Commission to take action over the deteriorating situation in Gaza. In the letter, the two leaders called for an immediate ceasefire and an urgent review of whether Israel is complying with its human rights obligations as stipulated in its trade deal with the EU. Over a million people are currently crammed into the southern city of Rafah as fears grow that Israel is about to launch a ground assault. Well, earlier today, Kira Doherty sat back with the Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman, and she began by asking him what has prompted the new push for sanctions by the Irish government. Well, I think the um, decision today is a further demonstration of the commitment of the government to um, raise the issue of what is taking place in Gaza and raise it at the highest possible levels and in the most effective way possible. What's happening in Gaza is not acceptable. It can't be justified by the 7th of October attacks. It can't be justified by the ongoing uh, keeping of, of hostages by Hamas. It is entirely unacceptable. 28,000 people dead, 69,000 people uh, injured, almost 90% of the Gaza population now at, at, at risk of hunger. And the Irish government has consistently led within the European Union, whether, whether it was being the Tánaiste, one of the first countries to reaffirm our commitments to, uh, to UNRWA in terms terms of uh, 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 both politically but also in terms of fundraising, in terms of our, uh, the fact that our Attorney General will be going to the International Court of Justice next week to take part in a case looking at the wider treatment of Israel uh, and its practices in, the Ga in Gaza and also in the West Bank. And again, that's a case that's been ongoing for a number of years because the Irish government isn't coming newly to the issue of, um, tar uh, of focusing on, on Israel's treatment of, of, of Palestinians in the West Bank, in, in Gaza. But the action in terms of raising the, uh, the, the, the EU-Israel um, Association Agreement is one further demonstration of that. What impact could these economic sanctions, if they were introduced, have? Um, we have to let this process take place. What we've been very clear of as a country is that we use our diplomacy and we use it effectively and we use it collectively. And I think that's why it's really important that we're not going out on our own here. Spain is coming uh, with us in terms of highlighting this. But, but we you would will like bring, to see punitive sanctions. We, we, will, bring, this we will bring this to the European Commission and allow the Commission's processes take place. Let it examine the uh, human rights uh, actions of the uh, of the Israel government of the Israeli Defence Forces in Gaza and allow that process complete uh, and I hope it will allow the EU as a whole because it won't it, it, you know it is far more effective the EU acting collectively than one or two member states acting individually but allow the EU as a whole take a very clear position in terms of human rights violations in Gaza and economic consequences for Israel. Okay but given the fact that you believe that those human rights obligations are not being adhered to would you welcome economic sanctions at this point on Israel. I want to see the process that is built into this agreement take place. Uh, I believe that process will demonstrate that there's a clear violation of the human rights articles within the EU-Israel uh, 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 Association Agreement uh, and I want the EU to be able to collectively follow through in terms of economic consequences. For Given the fact that there has been deep divisions within the EU about how to respond to the Israel-Hamas war, how confident are the Irish government that they can get an agreed response from mm. the 27 member states and how quickly 
given that time is of the essence here, how quickly do you think a decision can be made? Well, you're right. There has been a very divided EU approach to, to, to this issue to date. Uh, and initially, Ireland was very much on its own in terms of its advocacy and calling for a cease. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Fire and calling for, for, for Israel to, to cease its, its bombing of civilian, civilian areas. That has changed. And I think, you know, now there's a very clear recognition across most EU member states that Israel's response has been entirely disproportionate. Uh, there are a number of member states who continue to uh, be, be, you know, far less critical of what Israel is doing. But, uh, you know, if you listen even to what the, what the German government is saying, even there, I think there's starting to be a deep discomfort uh, in terms of the sheer scale of civilian uh, casualties that Israel's bombing of, uh, of, uh, of Gaza has, has created. I suppose there is the possibility that in the future that this could become a reality that tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people, would seek to leave the Gaza Strip. Given this government's active support of Palestinians, would they consider any special measures to fast track or accommodate refugees from that area? Well, I think any, uh, and there are Palestinians in the international protection system in Ireland at the moment, uh, and their applications are, are, are examined uh, and, and, and given very careful consideration. Uh, and any other uh, refu- people seeking refugee status in, uh, in Ireland would get similar, similar attention. Uh, I think we recognise, obviously, some of the neighbouring countries have done a huge amount in terms of refugees from Palestine over decades. Uh, almost 40% of the Jordanian population, for example, are already uh, are, are already Palestinian refugees. So a lot has been done in the uh, in, 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 in the, uh, the immediate area. Okay, but in terms of Ireland's response, mm. we also have special provisions for those trying to flee Ukraine, given the fact that Ireland has been such a vocal supporter mm. of Palestinians, particularly during this war, given the fact that we have been a leading voice in uh, the EU particularly, mm. there might be an expectation that Ireland would look to try and accommodate some of those refugees should they seek to leave. Well, ultimately, anybody who seeks international protection in Ireland from, from Palestine, from any other countries, their applications will be examined. But I think right now, what we want to achieve is for the Palestinian people to be able to stay in their homeland and stay there safely. And that will be achieved by, first of all, an immediate ceasefire, and secondly, the distribution of large quantities of humanitarian aid. Okay, but would and you I think be opposed, Minister, our I suppose, is. Sorry to cut across you. Would you be opposed to the idea of special measures to accommodate Palestinians in Ireland? Well, 
we uh, work through international bodies like uh, the UN in terms of the Irish Refugee Protection Programme. We've put in place measures for small numbers of people fleeing Afghanistan, fleeing, uh, fleeing Syria, for example. So we have programmes in place, but I think we shouldn't take the focus away from maintaining Palestinians in their homeland, because as we know from certain members of the Israeli government, driving Palestinians out of Gaza is exactly what, what they want. And our focus has to be keeping Palestinians safe, but allowing them remain in their homeland now, and ultimately allowing us to be able to, um, to, to implement a two-state st solution. And if Palestinians are driven out of Gaza, that becomes a lot less likely. Okay. Uh, I just want to move on to the referendum coming up next month. There is a betting company in Ireland today taking bets on this being the lowest turnout for any referendum in Ireland. What is your sense of what the turnout is going to be? I think we'll uh, I think we'll have a decent turnout. I, I think when you hold referendums on on a single uh, without uh, maybe an election at the same time, obviously that does have an impact. Uh, I notice, and I've been out a lot over the last three weeks, uh, meeting people at train stations, knocking on doors. Certainly between last week and this week, there's a big increase in terms of people's engagement, in terms of people's knowledge about the issues in the referendum. Posters are up now uh, around much of the country, uh, and as you know, the electoral commission will be making putting forward their uh, their documentation their their information about the proposals over the next number of days so i think there'll be uh, you know we've we're 3 weeks uh, away from polling day there's still lots of time for, uh, for for engagement for canvassing for debate and i think across that process people will understand because the, the other thing I, I think people say, well, instinctively, when you talk to them, like, you know, those people you know down the street, the family, well, they're actually not a family under our constitution right now because they're not married. That, um, that inequality, I think it offends a lot of people in, Irish, in Ireland, the fact that there are large numbers of relationships that all of us know that don't get the protection of being in the family uh, in the constitution because they're not married. You do get the sense within government that there is so, some concern about this referendum, about engagement, about turnout, and indeed about these uh, measures being passed? Uh, well, government certainly never takes any referendum uh, for granted. There's no complacency. Uh, as you've seen, all three of the government parties have launched campaigns, have directors of elections in place, are undertaking canvassing, uh, as of course are a significant number of civil society groups. We saw obviously the opinion poll last week, 52% uh, support for the provision on the family, 59% support for the provision of care and the no votes in the, uh, the, the early to mid-teens. So the yes side, uh, according to that poll, are significantly ahead. But again, no complacency. We'll be out there fighting for every single yes, yes vote on the 8th of March. Okay, your background is in law. Are you confident that the new text around durable relationships would not potentially have unintended consequences? I am. We've, we've chosen that, that language uh, specifically to ensure that we can, within our constitution, protect other types of family beyond the marital family. And by that we mean one-parent families, by that we mean cohabiting couples and any children that they, uh, that they might have. By just uh, allowing marital families protection of Article 41, we've really straight-jacketed the article. But there are other 
there is other language within that article that describes what a family is. It's a, a primary and fundamental unit group of society. It's a moral institution. And all of those existing terms guide us in terms of our understanding of what a family is. Uh, Senator Michael McDowell, the former AG, mm -hmm. former Minister for Justice, he's been really critical of the department's failure to publish 64 pages of information, notes, minutes, relating to discussions around the use of this particular wording. Um, why? Why not produce the information so that the public can be as au fait with the reasoning behind choosing a phrase like durable relationships above another? Well, as you know, once the referendum kicks in, we're uh, bound by certain rules. Uh, government, RTE, all other broadcasters, and indeed the civil service. And the, um, the reading of the civil service, the reading of the independent freedom of information officer is to, re to release uh, these notes, which are minutes of a number of meetings that took place, would be in breach of what are called the McKenna and McChrystal mm -hmm. rules. And for that reason, we're not in a position to do that because if we did release them, the civil service would be accused, uh, and probably by people on the no side, of trying to improperly influence the conduct of this campaign. So we all have to be bound by the rules uh, that have been established by the courts over years, and we're complying with them. OK, it's not a fear that perhaps if people saw some of the questions and concerns around that language that they might be inclined to vote no? No, because all any questions, any concerns is going to be raised in this campaign and hopefully myself and other Yes campaigners will have the opportunity to answer them, uh, to, to tackle myths, to tackle misinformation that's out there and make it very clear that the core goal of what we're doing in terms of changing the definition of the family is to allow the tens of thousands of families that are right now excluded from the protection of the Constitution because they're not marital families to widen that protection out to include them. And I think that's something that most Irish people can recognise is, is a fair measure. Okay, the other amendment will be recognising care mm -hmm. in the family and that the government shall strive to recognise that care. What is your definition of strife? I think it's serious and sustained measures uh, by government to support care within, uh, w within families. It's um, not just to try very hard, which is the Oxford Dictionary definition of strife. And would that be a bad thing? I think it's really important. I think we all recognise that as a state, we need to do more to support care in the family, whether it's the care someone gives to a person with a disability, whether it's the care mams and dads give to their, give to their kids, whether it's the care that uh, adult children give to their elderly parents. I suppose what people more would say, needs perhaps, to be done Minister, and put is in, that the, the language is, is weak, Minister, that the government shall try mm. very hard mm. to well, support. Well, first of all, there's no language in the Constitution requiring this obligation on the state now. And I think that's really important. So anyone saying I'm voting no to this language is leaving us with the status quo, which leaves us with nothing. nothing. Secondly, I don't believe the language is very weak because it's saying it shall strive. And in law, shall is a, is, is a strong direction. Like the alternative is may, where you have a, a government or a, a, anyone has a lot of flexibility there. But it's shall strive. It's, it's also a recognition, though, that 
what we need to do for care in this country can't take place straight away because there's so much we need to do. It's something that will be achieved progressively over time. But I know from, you know, I've been privileged now three and a half years being in Cabinet. I know when negotiations take place at budget time, when a law is being passed, and when there's a constitutional obligation on the state, that matters in those discussions. There isn't one right now. If we get a yes vote on the 8th of March, there'll be a constitutional obligation on the state to do more to support care. And I think that's something really positive. Roderick O'Gorman speaking to Kira Doherty a little earlier today. Coming up after the break, more on the call for the EU Commission to take action over Gaza. Welcome back. Aona Reardon is still here and joining us are Gavin Barish from the School of Law at UCD and down the line is Chris Guinness, former spokesperson with the UN agency UNRWA because we want to talk about the situation in Gaza and of course um, that letter that was issued by Leo Varadkar and uh, the Spanish Prime Minister um, to Ursula von der Leyen. But I want to come to you first, Chris Guinness, if I may. Let's start with the reality on the ground um, there. Uh, what are you hearing from former colleagues about the situation right now in Rafa? To put at its most stark, Rafa has become a symbol of man's inhumanity to man. There are 1.5 million people in a city which before the 7th of October had about a quarter of a million people. Many of those are in makeshift shelters. They're the lucky ones. Many others are simply living in the open air. There is not adequate um, facilities um, for food, for health, for latrines, for medicine. It really is um, the culmination of what the senior most humanitarian in the UN system has said is an onslaught unprecedented in its brutality, in its intensity and its scope. What we're seeing is nothing short of apocalyptic. And I believe that within days, we're going to start seeing mass starvation. We're going to see the outbreak of communicable diseases, which in a population so weakened by four months of this brutal conflict is inevitably going to lead to fatalities, I fear, on a large scale, particularly among the elderly, the frail, the vulnerable, the children and the newborn. So really, it's a culmination of an utterly brutal campaign. And unless we see the mass mobilization of a global humanitarian effort of the sort that we saw after the Haiti earthquake in 2010, when President Obama signed a decree which effectively put 20,000 American personnel boots on the ground. We saw aircraft carriers with helicopters evacuating the sick. We saw floating um, hospitals. That's the kind of effort we need today if we're going to avert a humanitarian catastrophe. Right now, uh, with an Israeli ground offensive in the offing, where will people go? We know that people have come from the north and the centre of the country to the south, where they were told it was safe. Where are people going to go right now? What are UNRWA's people on the ground saying about the situation in managing this um, from well, was... a shelter point of view? Yes. Yes, well, I was talking to colleagues today on WhatsApp who are actually at the safe area, in inverted commas, designated by the Israelis called Al-Mazawi, which is about four kilometres towards the coast to the west of Rafa. And to be frank, it is an area which is six square kilometres. That's about the size 
of a small regional airport, the size of Ben-Gurion Airport, actually, um, there simply isn't room for 1.5 plus million people to be standing up even, let alone sitting down. So there are no um, toilet facilities. The UN generally says that 20 people per toilet is what you need. Well, for a population this size, you need 75,000 toilets. Eight-person tents, do the math, eight divided by 1.5 million divided by eight. There's nothing like those sorts of facilities. And that's why I say there has to be a massive humanitarian uh, response plan, which I think must probably at this stage come from the Americans. It's simply not good enough to say that the protection of 1.5 million Palestinians plus, because more are coming down from Khan Yunus with every hour where there's an Israeli attack. So they're going from Khan Yunus just north of Rafa down. So it's simply not good enough to say that the Israelis that have shown themselves time and time again to be killing people in their droves in these designated safe areas, and by the way, in the lanes, the, the roads that lead to these safe areas. So there has to be a massive sea change in the international response, and that involves a huge humanitarian mobilization, which I think probably has to be led at this stage by the Americans. If they can get uh, warships into the eastern Mediterranean for military purposes, then heaven knows they can get them there for humanitarian purposes. All right, uh, very well. At this point, um, I'd like to bring in Gavin Barrett. Gavin, uh, to, to ask you about what we saw was a letter from Leo Varadkar and um, the Spanish Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez. Mm -hmm. They wrote a joint letter to the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, speaking about the central role, actually, of UNRWA, um, and how important maybe an intervention is at this uh, at this time, but they're also citing human rights obligations that Israel have under the terms of an EU-Israeli trade agreement. So, what could potentially happen there in terms of penalties um, for Israel on foot of potential action in Rafah? Um, well, I, I suppose uh, one point to bear in mind in this regard is that the um, uh, European Union is by far um, Israel's largest trading uh, partner. 25% uh, of um, Israeli exports go to the European Union. 31% of Israeli imports come from the European Union. So there's a lot of leverage in the hands of the European Union. And that relationship, the trade relationship, is governed uh, by the uh, EU-Israel Association Agreement. Now, there are two provisions in that that are of, of interest here. One of them is Article uh, 2, uh, which specifically provides for respect for, for human rights. It says that uh, the EU-Israel relationship is based on respect for fundamental rights. And also the, the provisions of the trade agreement itself, the association agreement itself, are based on respect for fundamental rights. Fundamental rights, to use the words of this agreement, are an essential element. Um, so that's one provision. And then the other provision that's of relevance here um, is Article 79, which provides that if either party to the agreement feels that the other party has failed uh, to fulfil uh, an essential obligation, it shall take appropriate measures. Uh, and the argument here is that Israel has manifestly failed to respect human rights. It has failed to comply with Article 2. And the letter from Pedro Sánchez and Leo Varadkar is an attempt to, if you like, initiate the process, to kickstart the process uh, of the consequences that attach to that. OK, and they may be kickstarting that process, but what power do they actually have to implement anything? Does it require all member states to get on board? Because we know that there are very differing opinions right across the EU. 
Um, yes, that's the, the point. The, the initial thing that needs to be done is that the uh, Commission um, actually needs to make a proposal concerning measures uh, in this regard. So it depends on uh, the, uh, the Commission headed by Ursula von der Leyen um, to actually make a proposal to the, uh, the ministers in the, uh, in the Council of Ministers, where, where each of the member states are represented. Uh, once that happens, um, it appears to be the case that a unanimous vote would be required on the part of the uh, member states, because under Article um, 218 um, of the uh, Treaty on the Functioning mm. of the European Union, one of the, one of the European Union treaties, it specifies uh, that uh, majority um, uh, voting does not apply in the area of association agreements. You require unanimity. Now, there's an element of, of um, uh, a, a doubt about that, but um, but it would appear, um, uh, certainly, uh, certainly Leo Varadkar um, expressed the view, view there um, uh, just today uh, that, uh, that unanimity would be required. The difficulty there would be that even if the vast majority of states at this stage are moving towards a position um, uh, whereby you know, they're unhappy with what's going on, they want to see something done about it, and they might even be prepared to use trade leverage um, to, to, to stop it happening. There are at least two states, um, in particular Hungary and the Czech Republic, um, who have been really um, quite um, irredentist in their support of what Israel is doing at the moment in Gaza. I guess the question is, can Ireland do anything unilaterally? Um, well, I, I, you know, it's, it's always possible for um, states to do uh, things individually, to take diplomatic steps. I mean, for instance, it, it, was, it has been suggested, um, uh, I don't think Ireland would do this, but it has been suggested that Ireland could expel the Israeli ambassador, uh, for example. There's nothing to stop Ireland from doing that unilaterally mm. if it wanted to do it. But I think Roderick O'Gorman there made the point uh, there that in actual fact, the leverage that the European Union has um, as this uh, enormous market uh, of almost half a billion consumers far exceeds any anything that Ireland actually has, so that if you can bring that into play, if you can somehow or even create the prospect, the serious prospect that that uh, is going to happen, um, uh, uh, then, then perhaps Israel might react to that. And we have to bear in mind, of course, the attack on Rafa has not actually yet um, uh, begun uh, in earnest. So uh, even though we've seen a shift of member states um, uh, right across the European Union in favour um, uh, of, of, uh, of doing something about this, uh, I think that uh, that voice would dramatically um, uh, increase should an attack on Rafa actually take place. So the potential threat of, of action on trade may, may you know, push or influence um, Israel in this regard. Do you think that's uh, true, Aon? I mean, do, I mean, from your perspective, what we have seen is language that's harder by the day mm. from Ireland with regard to Israel's position and what's happening right now in Gaza. But is, has the action followed suit? Well, look, many people can be critical of government uh, uh, to this point. Uh, I think people have to, have to view the Irish government in the European context that we have been stronger, we have, our language has been stronger than any, any other European state. Having said that, I'm of the view, I mean, what, what's, what's most uh, depressing is that there's nothing surprising about what Israel are doing, nothing surprising at all. Um, they have been acting with impunity for generations. And I am of the view that they are never going to stop and they're never going to come to heel, and they're never going to correct uh, their approach to this entire issue until they are absolutely isolated by the international community, until we have, uh, we break off economic, political, cultural, sporting links with Israel. They are not going to stop. Well, so, for example, let's just talk on sporting links. Yeah. Um, the basketball game that took place between mm. the Irish women and Israel. 
we saw the government response to that when they took a hands-off approach, essentially saying, "Look, it's up to it's up well, to the sport. It, okay. This isn't this isn't for you I, know I, the government of yeah. the day to decide." I don't I don't think we can reduce this to the individual to one individual game between between Ireland and Israel mm. on a basketball court. I think we have to have a you know Ireland have to be persuaders for a, an international response. But we saw what happened in the 80s with South Africa. After South Africa changed when the international community made it change. Mm. This is the only thing that's going to work with Israel because they're not going to stop. Right. And we're, we're witnessing a Srebrenica in Rafa at the moment. We're just waiting for it to happen. Okay, uh, Chris, if you're still with us, I'd like to ask you about UNRWA's position now. Is the UN's Palestinian programme facing a threat to its survival given Israeli opposition of the said programme? 100%, though I do think it's premature to talk about the demise of UNRWA, because don't forget, as well as having 13,000 staff working in Gaza, in, a, in all the agency has 33,000 staff working also in the West Bank, in Syria, Jordan and Lebanon. But as far as Gaza is concerned, yes, I mean, it's almost sickening to hear what's going on in Europe. I mean, when we hear that maybe an offensive in Rafa will motivate them to do something. What you mean, 30,000 people have already been killed and they need a couple of other, you know, tens of thousands to be killed before they'll do anything. And this just really shows the weakness of the response that we've had from okay. the Europeans. And it's some of those very European countries who have defunded UNRWA, mm -hmm. they've made UNRWA make choices, for example, its right. food programme to 1.2 may have to go. These states are complicit okay. in a massacre, in a slow-motion massacre, Thank in you. a starvation that's about we'll to happen. To, sorry to cut you off. We have to leave it there. That's all we have time for. My thanks to everyone tonight. Take care. Good night.